You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 30th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. It's 2300 in Canberra, 1300 in Bologna, midday here in London and 8am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Briefing starts now. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, Israel's military spent the weekend expanding its ground operation in Gaza and claims to have killed dozens of terrorists. We'll hear about the humanitarian concerns and legal implications. Then... The EU takes a very strong stand. It's a very protectionist market when it comes to agriculture and they weren't prepared to budge uh, enough for it to be in our interests. Negotiations between Australia and the EU on a comprehensive trade deal break down. The whole thing of the Arctic debate is a global agenda. Plus, Arctic security concerns in the wake of the Ukraine war and the latest business news. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. On Friday night, an Israeli military spokesperson announced that they would be expanding their ground activities in northern Gaza, with the territory experiencing its heaviest bombardment since the war with Hamas broke out. This was followed by troops in tanks and armoured vehicles moving into the region over the weekend, reportedly cutting off a key road from the north to the south of the Strip. Doctors at the Al-Quds Hospital in Gaza City say Israel told staff on Sunday to evacuate patients, but with many in intensive care, staff say it's impossible. Israel believes, however, Hamas has purposefully built an underground command bunker beneath the site for protection. Tom Porteous is Deputy Programme Director for Human Rights Watch. He joins us now from Washington, D.C. Tom, thank you for speaking with us. Uh, Firstly, for civilians in Gaza, what are Human Rights Watch's concerns now this ground invasion is underway? There's not enough food in Gaza. There's a severe shortage of clean drinking water, which obviously poses a major uh, health threat. Uh, more than a million people have been told to evacuate northern Gaza, but there's no safe place to go. There's no safe way to get there. And uh, Israel has uh, bombed areas uh, in southern Gaza where uh, civilians have been told to go. Uh, Israeli forces have dropped explosive weapons with wide area effects in, in highly densely populated areas of Gaza, um, which is uh, a practice that is um, predictably uh, causing massive civilian casualties. And that's why it's a practice that is widely discredited now internationally. Um, the latest casualty figures from yesterday are that uh, the more than 8,000 Palestinians um, had been killed, among them uh, more than uh, 3,300 uh, children, uh, according to Gaza's health ministry. Uh, nearly half of Gaza's ha- housing units have been destroyed or damaged. There are disruptions to telecommunications, um, uh, and these have been impeding emergency services. There was an almost total blackout over the weekend. Um, and Israel continues to obstruct the delivery of uh, relief supplies to Gaza's um, 2.2 million people, um, nearly half of whom are children. 
Just picking up on the point of relief supplies, Israel says it's happy for food, for other resources to come through the border with Egypt, but it doesn't allow fuel. It says uh, that there has been uh, stockpiles of fuel uh, by Hamas that can be used for generators and for things like desalination. Um, Where does it stand legally uh, in its position? Israel, um, under the international humanitarian law, is obliged to um, allow uh, the free delivery of humanitarian aid, whatever is needed uh, for the the protection of civilians. Uh, In previous conflicts in Gaza, um, which we have reported on since uh, 2007, um, Israel always allowed um, uh, supplies of humanitarian aid, supplies of food, fuel, uh, through uh, the, the the border between Israel and Gaza. Right now, the focus is on uh, on Rafah, the border between Egypt and Israel. The amount of, uh, of humanitarian aid that is going through there is 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 dismal. It's it's a, it's a it's a drop in the ocean compared to what's needed. Um, Israel could easily open um, its border to um, to humanitarian aid. It could easily, just simply by the switch, uh, flick of a switch, turn on the water and the uh, and the electricity to, um, uh, to 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 Gaza. Yes, of course, um, it is also uh, uh, against the, um, uh, the the laws of war for Hamas to divert uh, any humanitarian supplies to. Um, uh to uh its own military operations but the fundamental uh principle of the laws of war are to protect civilians and under that uh, principle israel has uh, a clear obligation to be uh, allowing the free delivery of sufficient humanitarian aid to protect uh, civilian life Hmm. Uh, Israel would obviously point to, uh, you know, you mentioned the weapons that they're using. It would point to the fact that thousands of rockets have been fired uh, over the last three weeks. uh, And obviously the events of the 7th, which saw over 1,400 killed, over 200 hostages, which are still being held, that it has uh, the right to defend itself after the the attack. From what you've seen so far of this ground uh, invasion, are they respecting uh, the rules of war and international law? Look, I mean, the latest escalation, obviously, as you say, began with these uh, unlawful attacks by Hamas on Israeli civilians that that really shook Israel to to, to its core. Um, uh, and uh, they were horrific attacks. And as you point out, uh, there continue to be rocket attacks uh, from uh, uh, Gaza um, into Israel. These are war crimes. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt about it. And nothing can justify them. Uh, but it's also a, a very strong principle of international humanitarian law that it is non-reciprocal. That is, uh, just because uh, the other side is committing war crimes, that doesn't give uh, you license, uh, in this case Israel, license to commit war crimes in, in Gaza. And then they are committing war crimes by uh, through collective punishment. And they're making no secret of the fact that cutting off um, uh, supplies to uh, Gaza over the last three weeks has been uh, a, a deliberate um, uh, 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 a, a deliberate act designed to, to punish the civilian population. That's clear from statements from very senior um, uh, officials. Uh, the, 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 these are uh, the collective punishment of the civilian population is a war crime. Uh, and however horrific the attacks by Hamas were, uh, nothing can justify the commission of war crimes in response to those attacks.
And just looking uh, finally at where this might go, Israel is accusing Hamas of using a hospital complex as cover. Uh, there have been strikes around it. They've uh, told doctors to evacuate patients, which they say is too difficult. Whilst international law protects such facilities, that can be compromised if they're knowingly used for military purposes. That's what Israel has been saying this morning. Is that right? Look, I mean, the the Israeli army statements on Gaza hospitals do raise very, very grave concerns for the safety of patients and medical workers, and also for the safety of the many civilians who have taken refuge around those hospitals. If accurate, the use of medical facilities by Palestinian armed groups for military purposes is very alarming and certainly violates the laws of war. But hospitals have uh, special protections that they only lose if being if the, those hospitals are used to commit acts harmful to the enemy those are the words used uh, in in the law and after due warning so doctors nurses and ambulances have to be permitted to do their work and to be protected in all circumstances the purpose of issuing a, a, a warning is to um uh, uh, is to allow those committing uh, the acts harmful to the enemy in other words in this case if it's true uh, palestinian armed groups to stop doing that um and then of course uh, uh, if, if that doesn't happen um the warning should be that uh, hospital staff and medical patients should ev- evacuate but as a last resort but in the current circumstances it's impossible for hospital staff and medical patients to evacuate all the hospitals in uh, gaza the functioning hospitals as far as we can tell have been given the same order so where are they supposed to evacuate the patients to and the roads are unsafe and uh, the whole territory is under bombardment so an evacuation warning of this kind is totally um is, is totally kind of ineffective and, and can't be effective um and so the principle remains that um Uh, doctors, nurses, ambulances and hospitals have to be permitted to do their work and protected in all circumstances. Tom Porteous, thank you very much. Now here's Carlos Arabello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. Israeli troops and tanks are pushing further in the Gaza Strip after launching a ground offensive of the Palestinian territory. The escalation over the weekend prompted international calls for civilians to be protected. The United Nations has warned that Israeli airstrikes are landing close to hospitals in Gaza. Police in the Russian city of Muhachkala have arrested 60 people and taken control of the airport after hundreds of anti-Israel rioters stormed the building. The crowd was reportedly looking for passengers from a flight from Tel Aviv and some were shouting anti-Semitic slogans. And Germany's Chancellor hopes to deepen ties with Nigeria and its natural gas companies as he visits Africa's most populous nation today. In an interview before his trip, Olaf Scholz said Berlin and Abuja will also discuss opportunities in the hydrogen energy market. Scholz will also travel to Ghana later in the week. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Carlotta, thank you. Negotiations on a trade agreement between Australia and the European Union have fallen through, Australian Trade Minister Don Farrell said on Sunday. The talks, held on the sidelines of a meeting of G7 trade ministers in Japan, were seen as a last-ditch attempt for the two sides to bridge remaining gaps. 
Getting better access to the large European market for beef, sugar and sheep meat is an imperative for Australia's large agricultural sector. For Brussels, an agreement would grant better access to Australia's vast reserves of strategic minerals. Karen Middleton is the Saturday paper's chief political correspondent. She joins me now from Canberra. Karen, thank you for speaking with us. Why have these uh, talks collapsed now? I think Australia's decided, Vincent, that it's not a good enough deal. Uh, they've been back and forth on on this um, attempt at a free trade agreement for about five years now uh, across two different governments on the Australian side because we had a change of government 18 months ago. And they just feel that this is not good enough to sign on to. And they've got the support of the now opposition who were previously in government. So both both sides of politics here in Australia are saying that they don't think what Europe is offering is good enough yet and they're going to hold out for a bit longer. And what are the particular sticking issues when it comes to agriculture? Why don't they think it's good enough? I think they think that the quotas that are being offered are not adequate from uh, for Australian produce into Europe. And they're not happy with the demands that are being made about restrictions on the use of particular names of products uh, that has been argued are regionally based or particularly associated with parts of Europe. And we've, we've seen that with successfully managed with the area of champagne in France and Australia. We can't call anything that's not French champagne champagne anymore. We have to call it sparkling wine. And the same kinds of requirements were being made of uh, Italian-style sparkling wine called Prosecco and cheese described as feta. Uh, Australian producers of goods in that vein would no longer be able to use those names and other similar names. And I think our government has dug in on that point and said that 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 is not acceptable either. Mm. The Australian agriculture lobby is very strong. There was a lot of criticism here in the UK uh, of our government for the post-Brexit trade deal being too beneficial to Australian farmers. Is that something you think Brussels might have taken note of or their own sort of domestic agricultural audience? Well, it's interesting. They may have, but of course, in this case, we're dealing with like, 27 different countries rather than just the one uh, United Kingdom. So it's a much more complicated deal from, from a standing start to try and strike it with different countries having uh, different demands. But I think France in particular has been holding out on this deal and making demands of the Australian side. And maybe they do look across at, at the UK and wonder whether the UK gave too much away. And do you think, just you've highlighted France there, do you think there might be a bit of a particular soreness still uh, in Paris over the collapsed deal uh, for the submarines, the replacement with the AUKUS deal? Is that sort of left a bit of a uh, nasty taste for President Macron? I don't think so. I think the indications are from the French government that they see this as a new government in Australia, a different government than the last one. And in fact, if anything, the Australian Prime Minister and the French President are very matey-matey. So I wouldn't think that it was a hangover of that. I really do think that, you know, the French, particularly the agriculture sector in France, is, is also known for being <laughs> particularly tough. So uh, I suspect it's more the producers making demands than any residuals uh, between the two governments over what was a, a pretty um, nasty episode relating to the submarines. Mm. And just on the flip side, why are these Australian minerals so important for the EU to access? Are they the key components for microchips and EV batteries? 
Yeah, so I think we're seeing debate right around the world at the moment about access to critical minerals. There's been a lot of debate and discussion about maintaining supply chains and ensuring that particular countries like China can't dominate the market and supply. So Australia sees this as an opportunity for itself with some of those minerals, and I think they want to make sure they get the best possible deal for their produce. And stepping back, sort of the geopolitical significance of this, obviously we're seeing the forming of a seemingly new sort of axis uh, between the likes of uh, Russia and China, North Korea, Iran at the moment. The sort of Western nations, Anglo-speaking nations are trying to sort of build better ties. Do you think it's important for the EU and Australia to sort of get together again on this? Will there be pressure maybe to sort of fortify these links, particularly with the minerals and their importance for uh, developing technologies? Well, I think there is disappointment on both sides that they haven't been able to reach an agreement this time. And where there is some pressure domestically uh, and some light between the, the, the parties here in Australia is that the opposition here believes that the Australian government should be trying harder to get a deal sooner. So while they agree this isn't the best deal on either the mineral side or the agriculture side, they don't want our government to sit back and leave it now for years and years, as has been suggested. They want this to, to, to be accelerated and moved on quickly. So I think there's genuine pressure and general a general view around the world that, that uh these these deals are beneficial and because there's a lot of focus on these minerals, I'm sure from the European side they would like to secure some arrangements for accessing those. And finally, where do you think this will go now? Will we see perhaps a delegation from Brussels travelling to Australia or vice versa? Well, it's an interesting question. This is what we don't know. Our government seemed to be saying, oh, well, we'll just leave it for the time being. And nobody knew what that meant. It seemed open-ended, that, you know, the implication being it could take years. I'd be surprised if if one side or other doesn't want to try and come back to this. But there is a suggestion it may take until after the European elections next year before they can come back to the table and try again. Karen Middleton, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with the briefing on Monocle Radio. Let's turn to Bloomberg's Ewan Potts now for the day's main business headlines. Ewan, after weeks of strikes, there's some mixed news for Chrysler carmaker Stellantis. Yeah, the company behind Fiat, Jeep, Peugeot, Citroën and Chrysler has reached an agreement with striking workers in the US. Now, Union United Auto Workers uh, Union Workers uh, have been on strike for six weeks in the US. They were targeting Stellantis, GM and Ford. But over the weekend, uh, we got an agreement from Stellantis for a 25% hourly pay rise and with cost of living allowances. Now, the union says that will bring the top wage to over $42 an hour, which, according to my maths, is an annual salary of about $85,000. Stellantis also made concessions on job security. Uh, UAW President Sean uh, Fan says that Stellantis more than doubled the value of the total proposals they had on the table. But uh, there was some uh, bad news for Stellantis. 4am UK time, the news dropped that uh, workers in Canada were going to go on strike. This was uh, something of a surprise. But just within the last 45 minutes, we've heard that uh, those uh, talks have wrapped up and there has been an agreement in Canada with striking workers Unifor, which represents Canadian car makers, uh, announced that action, which would involve 8,000 members. But they seem to uh, have managed to reach a settlement. So just going back to the US, that just leaves General Motors yet to resolve its strikes of the uh, of the big the big three. 
the UAW is expanding its strike against GM. They're taking in a plant in Tennessee, which employs 3,200 workers. Uh, so that is adding to the strike at GM. So a lot of pressure on GM to follow suit with the others. Just looking at the cost of all of this, Ford says the stoppage has cost it about $1.3 billion dollars. Uh, so far, and the pay rises and improved conditions will add $850 to $950 to the cost of each car they produce in the US. And turning to China now, Apple's latest iPhone, its most important product, doesn't seem to be going down that well. Yeah, there's growing evidence that Apple's latest iPhone is falling shy of its predecessor in China. Now, it is something of a setback for the world's most valuable company. China is its most important overseas market. And some new data today from uh, from GFK consumer uh, researchers say that the iPhone 15 series has seen a 6% decline in sales in its launch month compared to the previous uh, year. Now, Apple gets about 20% of its revenue from China, second only to the US in importance. And of course, virtually all of the world's iPhones are manufactured in China through partners like uh, Foxconn. Now, one of the key factors was uh, Shenzhen-based Huawei. Uh, it uh, abruptly released its Mate 60 and 60 Pro smartphones just in the weeks leading up to the iPhone launch, uh, drawing uh, buyers away from Apple and drawing attention, none too discreetly, to its Made in uh, China uh, tag uh, and a processor uh, which it targeted as a breakthrough in its fight to overcome US trade sanctions. Of course, it is a tricky balance for Apple, those rising tensions between the US and China uh, putting it in a rather a tricky spot. And you remember back in September, we heard that Beijing is expanding a ban on the use of iPhones in certain government-backed agencies mm. and state-owned enterprises. So a number of uh, staff in government agencies are not allowed to use their iPhones in the office. That is bound to dent sales. Is there also, apart from those restrictions and the sort of national uh, pride in Huawei, a bit of an issue as well that, I mean, I have the iPhone 14, the iPhone 15, I really can't tell the difference of a point in upgrading to it. Have Apple sort of run out of the easy innovations now in order to attract buyers to want to upgrade at the pace that they might have done in years gone by? Well, I certainly think there's a little bit of uh, truth in that. You remember in the early days of the iPhone, uh, these uh, big uh, displays with Steve Jobs, these massive launches, the fanfare, and the improvements really seemed to be tangible, didn't they? They made massive, great strides in the technology. And it was an amazing product when it first came out. And the improvements in the first few years were quite something. But it does feel like uh, the improvements these days and not quite what they used to be. Of course, they still uh, launched them with a big fanfare, and it's very important for uh, Apple to grow their iPhone sales. It is uh, their most important product. It's responsible for uh, a, a close to half of uh, all of Apple's uh, revenue. But yeah, incremental technology gains, well, they do get more and more tricky. Ewan, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. To the Arctic now, a region long regarded as a paragon of relative peace and stability. But Russia's war in Ukraine and the climate crisis have led to a shift. Many nations are asserting their political power in the area and looking to capitalise on its many resources. It's not just Arctic states either. China, India, Singapore, Japan and South Korea have been working together on scientific research in the world's most northern reaches. 
At the recent Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, Monocle's Andrew Muller sat down with Dr. Atsushi Tsunami, president of the Sasakawa Peace Foundation, a key player in Japanese Arctic interests. Dr. Tsunami reflected on the Arctic Council giving Japan observer status in 2013. Which really created a need for Japanese policy to to think about the Arctic as not just participating over the state, but to study about the, the debate and the issues and so on and so forth. And that's where we came in, to really provide the uh, basic uh, understanding of the Arctic debate, uh, what are the Arctic states are com- interested in, what they're trying to do, not just us thinking about our own interest of getting into what's Arctic for us, but it's really the common interest of the Arctic states and communities of what they are thinking. So that's where our foundation found a tremendous uh, importance for us engaged in that Arctic, in not only just small special interests, but much larger area of uh, Japan's involvement. I mean, Japan's obviously not the only Southeast Asian country taking an interest in the Arctic. Um, China, South Korea, Singapore, perhaps most obviously. Do you see an inevitability of of competition among those powers in the Arctic? Because obviously, near where you all live, there are any number of rivalries and claims and counterclaims. Is there a concern that that sort of... uh, well, hostility is the wrong word, but but those the, those disagreements get exported to the Arctic if you're all trying to operate there at once. Yeah, well, that's that's something that we like to avoid, mm-hmm. and that's where our foundation tried to be part of it. Because if you look at the our neighbors, uh, our friends in China, our friends in Korea, they are led by the uh, government institutions mm-hmm. that are redoing, you know, uh, dedicated on the research on the Arctic. So. But when we have a government institutions and government agencies that are in charge of the Arctic policy, like for Ministry of Foreign Affairs and others, but that represents their national interests. And sometimes, of course, the national interests of even between China, Japan, Korea, or any, any other Asian countries or any other countries mm-hmm. would, of course, in a condition of geopolitical uh, climate at nowadays in the Arctic, really creates any environment uh, where they, they, we uh, cannot even uh, find our common interests around the Arctic, right? So the COVID and because of the uh, our own relationship among our countries, sometimes the even China, Japan, Korea, the three countries, we have created from the beginning of this uh, three country trilateral dialogue mm-hmm. at, the, at, the, at the state level. But uh, COVID and other conditions were really were forced uh, them not to really convene or so it wasn't, it wasn't really held for last few years. And we are the foundation came in and created the, a, a forum for, for all of them to come and meet and talk. So we creating this kind of environment where the states themselves cannot I mean, there was also earlier this year that inaugural Arctic Circle Japan Forum. Um, when the observer nations or the, the countries outside the Arctic get together to, 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 to talk about the Arctic, do you ever encounter any pushback from the actual Arctic countries? Are they at all proprietal about, you know, saying, well, hang on, this is, this is ours, this is, wh- this is where we live? Yes. So when, I, when we started uh, to engage in Arctic debate, uh, uh, we are 
we are warned, we are cautioned mm. by 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 uh, those that are already involved in the Arctic debate, saying that uh, you know you're observer state, all right? You know what the role as an observer <laughs> state, and the Arctic and Arctic issues remains in the Arctic. Our, our, our approach to the Arctic at the initial stage was very cautious, but then over the years, I think uh, the Arctic countries themselves. Uh, start to saying the see uh, the 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 problem in the Arctic doesn't start from the Arctic, but also end, doesn't end with that. I mean, the whole thing of the Arctic debate is a global agenda, global issue. So they need the uh, the global stakeholders to come and learn about the Arctic, know more about the Arctic, and be part of the Arctic debate. So that whole thing really changed. That was Doctor Atsushi Tsunami speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Christy O'Grady. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thanks for listening. (laughs) 